Before we go to God's word, let's pray again. Oh, Lord Jesus, come now by your spirit and take the meager scraps of this poor minister and do a spirit work of multiplication that our hearts and minds may be fed richly from the bounty of your word. We praise you, Lord, for all that you have done. And right now we thank you for the ministry of your word through which you promise effective spiritual work in our hearts. So come and do it, that Jesus might be praised. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Our text is verses 3 and 4. Tell you what, I'll help you out. Let's start in verse 1. We'll read through verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and now the proclamation of his holy and inspired word. Well, we've taken a a slow roll through this salutation of Romans, um, slower than I anticipated, but in the last couple of weeks I've begun to realize, you know, there's so much packed into these small phrases. How arrogant of me to think we could take four verses at a time starting last week. Um, There's so much here. Last week we met Paul. Paul serves and was called and is set apart there at the end of verse 1 for the gospel of God which was proclaimed in the Old Testament and has now begun to find fulfillment in the New Testament that is in Jesus Christ the Son of God. And that's who we meet next. We meet the one that Paul serves. We meet Jesus. And these verses, 3 and 4, explain the substance of the gospel of God from verse 1. And they define for us the subject matter of that gospel. This gospel that Paul has been set apart for, what is it about? Who does it concern? It is clearly stated there at the beginning of verse 3. It concerns his son. That is, it concerns Jesus, the Son of God. And this is Paul's purpose. And we can ask it in a question that might be more helpful. Why is Paul, in his introduction to these people in Rome, declaring to them these truths about Christ. Why here? We're going to get into the meat of this letter. I mean, there are 16 chapters packed full of deep theological instruction. Why does he take these sort of, um, you know, half sentences and, and discontinued phrases and stitch them together at the beginning of the gospel? Why is Paul declaring these truths about Christ here in this way at the very beginning. And it is simply this, that at the very beginning, to make clear his purpose for the whole of the book is to remind them 
and encourage them of the gospel that they have believed. Paul is declaring to them in, in these half sentences, in these brief but rather punchy phrases, he is declaring that Jesus is the king. He is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. And in particular here in verses 3 and 4, Paul is declaring to us that Jesus has come and done all things necessary for your salvation. And before we even get into it, I want you to think about the good news that that is. That you don't have to save yourself. That Jesus has done it all. And he reminds them and he reminds us in 3 and 4 that Jesus has done everything necessary for salvation. And Paul really, he really does pack it in tight. Verses 3 and 4 may actually be um, some kind of ancient confession or creed that was at use in the churches that Paul planted. Um, this may be a common phrasing to some of the doctrine that he proclaimed as he ministered and planted churches around the region. These two verses are intended to point the readers to the substance of the gospel of God, which is Jesus himself. But I want you to notice before we get into it that there's a distinction between verses 3 and 4. The reference there in verse 3 to Jesus' ancestors, King David, and the reference to his resurrection in verse 4, each of these point to two stages of his gospel work. Track with me. Verse 3 refers to the time that Jesus spent on earth until his death. It's referred to theologians as his humiliation, that, that humble estate that he found himself in when he became a man and dwelt among us. And verse 4, in reference to the resurrection of Jesus, refers to everything that happened from that point onward, his exaltation, if you will, his, his resurrection and his ascension and his now currently reigning in heaven and his one day return in triumph to bring his people home. We, we might say that verse 3 is pre-resurrection and verse 4 is post-resurrection. Paul's drawing this dividing line between the ministry of Christ some of it happened before he died and was raised, and some of it happened after he raised. Our catechism speaks about these two stages of Christ's work. They call them the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. At one point in his earthly life, Jesus was in a humble, a lowly condition. He was under the law. He suffered pain unto death. But at another future point, Jesus became victorious over the grave. He, he ascended into the highest heaven to rule His church. And He is waiting for that one day, someday, when He will return in triumphant glory and declare sin dead forever, never to return again. Paul's use of this perhaps ancient creed or confession, is meant to remind us in these two parts of the whole of the gospel. Pre-resurrection and post-resurrection. We get the idea there from verse, verse 1 into verse 3 
the gospel of God, that, that gospel Paul was set apart for, jump to the beginning of verse 3, concerning his son. The gospel is all about Jesus, the Son of God. And Paul offers these short phrases to draw our mind to just what Jesus has done in the gospel. He wants us to remember the substance of this good news message that God has communicated to us through His Son. And, and this tonight, four headings for us to help our remembrance. Four things that Paul draws our attention to that are summarized in this, this creedal statement of verses 3 and 4. One, Jesus became a man. Two, Jesus died. Three, Jesus rose. And four, Jesus reigns. Jesus became a man. Jesus died. He rose. He reigns. In the first place, you see in verse 3 that Jesus is the one who was descended from David according to the flesh. That is to say that Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. The language even of the ESV, to which I uh, pledge my allegiance, um, is, is, is a bit spotty. There's actually language in verse 3 of, of him being descended from the seed of David. That him being, he is biologically connected to David. And there's a very important reason why Jesus became a man and why he's biologically connected to David, which we'll get to. It, it's all the beforehand promises of verse 1, or verse 2, excuse me. Think back. In the very earliest pages of Scripture, mankind fell from communion with God. Adam and Eve rebelled against the Creator, and they plunged the whole world into a wreck of sin and misery. And yet, the Lord, almost immediately there in Genesis chapter 3, promised to send one who would redeem his people from this sin that he was now living in. One day, someday, the Lord said, Yes, the serpent may crush his heel, but my servant will crush the head of the serpent. Symbolizing the death that would come to sin and the life that would come back to God's people. And over and over again, God has promised in the Old Testament to send someone. Remember that, that part of verse 2? He promised beforehand. Over and over and over again, God promised to Abraham that he would send someone. He promised um, to Israel in the wilderness that he would send someone. He promised to David that he would send someone. He promised through the prophets that he would send someone. He continually promised, continually pointed them forward to remember that God was still going to fulfill this promise. And this is why Paul refers to Jesus as the one descended from David. Jesus is the answer to all of those beforehand promises that he references in verse 2. Martin Luther says it this way, the gospel centers in the Son of God, but not merely in the Son of God as such, but inasmuch as he became incarnate of the seed of David. That is to say, inasmuch as he emptied himself and became a weak man. You see, Paul is using the phrase 
descended from David as a reference to what Jesus um, did in order to accomplish the salvation of his people. And so in that small little phrase, we are reminded that Jesus was, was, was born a fragile, helpless baby. That he needed parents to take care of him and to raise him. We're reminded that, that he increased over time in, in wisdom and stature and that he grew up into a man of God. Think of it, that, that the very one through whom all of creation was made became a part of the creation he made. <laughs> he became a man. He took on flesh, John says, and he dwelt among us. More than this, he was made under the rule of the law. Again, the lawmaker became a law keeper. He kept it perfectly. He didn't need to do it for himself. He wasn't trying to show off or anything. The law was made for sinners. And it was the epitome of humility for him to come and put himself under it. More than this, Jesus was conflicted, as our, our standards would say, with the indignities of this world. So not just the temptations, and especially that which he suffered at the hands of the devil in the wilderness, but, but much more than that. Do you know that Jesus was human, and he got tired, and he suffered hunger and sadness, and then he experienced sorrow? That he even, he even endured the, the pressure of intense temptation much more than any one of us have ever felt before. So this is what Paul means when he writes in Philippians 2, just a little bit before our call to worship, though he, referencing Christ, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You know, so much heresy has been driven out of this passage, just those couple of verses in Philippians 2. Think about it like this. In the garden, go way back again, in the garden, Adam and Eve grasped after godlikeness. Do you remember what, what the evil one told them? If you eat this, you'll be like God. And then they thought, oh, well, well, then that's what I want. They grasped after God's glory. They had no right to it. It was not theirs to go out and take. But the very Son of God who had every right to it in His own self, in a moment, at His incarnation, chose not to grasp at the glory of God, but instead to become like us in order to save those who once sought after the glory that belongs only to Him. Jesus became a man. That's almost heretical. The Son of God became a man. His name is Jesus. But Jesus also died and this is implied in the text. It's not outrightly stated. But do you know how we know that he died? Because he had to be resurrected. Why did Jesus die? Well, let's back to those beforehand promises of verse 2. In the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God tells his people that their sin deserves death. He gives them pictures of it. 
he states it to them outrightly. Sometimes he even brings that death upon them by his own hand. The wages of sin is death. You know, what we think and what we say and what we do, apart from the work of God, all of it goes against him. All of it displays our rebellion to our Creator. And it earns us the penalty of death. One of the clearer pictures of this is in the chapters, the earlier chapters of Exodus. The Lord declares that all the firstborn children in the land will die in a single night. It was his final judgment on the land of Egypt. They would rebel if, if they would not listen. If Pharaoh would refuse to let his people go, then death would come on all the land. And apart from the work that God gave for them to do, apart from the provision that He made, even Israel's firstborn children would die. But to His people, He gave a sacrament, a sign, that would remind them again and again and again into the future of the mercy and grace that God has extended to them, and it would point them forward to the way of salvation. You remember what it was. Every family, take a lamb and kill it and paint its blood all over your doorpost so that when that angel comes by in the night and it sees the blood on your doorpost, it will know that death has already occurred here and it will pass over. No need for the child to die for one has already shed blood for him. This is why Jesus died. You remember Isaiah 53? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, let me rephrase it, for your iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought you peace. And by His wounds, mark it, not your own, by His wounds you are healed. This is why Jesus died. Because God chose, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, to show his love for you, and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Just before that, he makes this point. Who would, who would die for someone? I told my girls the other day, I'd die for any one of them, including their mother. But after that, it's, it's sort of a gamble. Maybe for my brother. Hope he doesn't come listen to this. Probably not for any of y'all. And I don't mean, I mean, you know, in the moment perhaps, but I'm not very fast. I don't know if I could get there in time to save your life. Think of it. Are you worth dying for? Jesus died for you. So that you won't have to. Jesus bore and felt God's wrath. He endured the painful, shameful, mockery, cursed death of a cross. He died there so that you never have to. And then He rose. That's verse 4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. What does Paul mean here? 
Was, was Jesus not the Son of God until his resurrection? No, certainly not. Jesus is the Son of God. He never became the Son of God. What Paul means here is just what he means in Philippians, back to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when it says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross, beginning of our call to worship. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's all Paul is talking about here in Romans 1, verse 4. That, that when, when Jesus had f- finished this work that he'd been given, he came up from the grave and... and, and And it was a declaration to the world of his true and full identity. Where he had previously lived in that low, humble estate and suffered death, now by his resurrection, his... the truth of who he is is declared in power to the whole world that he has made. John Fesco says it like this, God bellowed from the heavens that Jesus is his only begotten son by his resurrection from the dead. That's what it means. He was declared to be the son of God in power. How? By his resurrection from the dead, by that Holy Spirit work of bringing him up from the grave. He rose and now, fourthly, he reigns. That last bit of language at the end of verse 4 is he, he sort of connects the beginning of verse 3 to the end of verse 4 this inclusio concerning his son and he identifies him there at the end as Jesus Christ our Lord. This is language of exaltation. Jesus isn't just some guy that rose from the dead. There were other people that did that. Jesus is Christ our Lord. This is why it says in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus ascended up into heaven and there through the ministry of His church He gathers and defends His people and He subdues our enemies. And he will furnish his ministers and his people with gifts and graces and he makes intercession for them. And mark it, one day he will come again in glory. And sin will be no more. And all will be made right. This is the gospel. That Jesus became a man and that Jesus died and that Jesus rose and that now he reigns. This is the gospel. John Murray says it like this, everything antecedent in the incarnate life of our Lord moves moves toward the resurrection and everything subsequent rests upon the resurrection and is conditioned by the resurrection. It says this is the subject matter of the gospel of God and it is that with which prophetic promise was engaged. And this is what Paul has written Romans to be about. It's a preview of what's to come. This is what he's writing about. The gospel concerning God's Son. Now, as we steer in for a landing, and some of you are looking at your watches going, really? No, not, hold on. It's a long landing. I want to ask a question again, and I want us to take some time and answer. Why does Paul 
summarize the substance of the gospel in these brief phrases and more poignantly what's he what's paul looking for in us what's the encouragement here for the first readers and for us as we are reminded of this gospel again well first this in the very first place the beginning of verse three the gospel declares that salvation from sin is all about jesus the gospel of god end of verse one into the beginning of verse three concerning his son listen to john calvin the whole gospel is included in christ he says if any remove one step from christ he withdraws himself from the gospel and then he says this we hence learn that he that is just anyone he who has made a due proficiency in the knowledge of christ has acquired everything which can be learned from the gospel and on the other hand that they who seek to be wise without christ are not only foolish but completely insane you gotta love john calvin think of it friends you know what is the gospel and we've gone through the the narrative that that paints the picture for us of dead in our sin apart from god and jesus becomes the, the son of god becomes a man jesus of nazareth and and he 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 dies and and raises and he's ascended on high and all of this encapsulates the gospel but but i want to encourage you to remember that it's all about jesus and if you ever get very far from him, even in our own thinking sometimes, I mean, when you sit down to pray, how quickly have you thanked the Lord for Jesus and what he has done for you before you jump on to the list of things you have or, or, or the other aspects of God's you know, deity or his majesty? You know, we get really good at maybe about talking about God, but do we forget that, that Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who has saved us? There's no salvation apart from him. If anyone moves one step from Christ, he withdraws himself from the gospel. But another thought for you here is, is Paul writes this, even briefly, to encourage and remind us. He writes to encourage and remind us. And to start with, we'll say he, he's reminding us of, of this gospel because we forget. You know, this is this is true without a reminder that comes up on my phone or on my watch i will forget to feed my dogs i will forget to take the trash out i'll forget to change the oil in my car and, and you know i'm not an especially ditzy person at least i don't think so we can ask my wife later there are things that i just forget and isn't it just a part of being human that we forget things I have to remind myself to those, do those simple little things that, that should come very naturally. How much more do we need to remind ourselves that Jesus is the King and that He has done all things necessary for your salvation? This truth, more than any other, perhaps, is what we need reminding of every single day. Wake up tomorrow and be reminded that Jesus has saved you and there's nothing left for you to do toward it but live in gratitude and graciousness.
to rest in his finished work. He, he has not accomplished part of your salvation and you've got to work hard for the rest. He, he hasn't he hasn't sort of given you the ability to maybe work towards your salvation. You know, you're not going to have to wait to get to heaven because you've got more to work off after you die. Jesus has done it all. In his humiliation and in his exaltation, everything is covered. And everything you need to live a life before God that is pleasing and that is enjoyable, everything you need to enter into glory one day as his child has been finished. We are not meant to live lives with underlying senses of guilt until we die. But we live free. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. And if you live in any other way than that, if you live in some way that thinks that you just need to, to make up for something, that I just feel guilty, uh, yes, confess your sin. Yes, repent of your sin. Yes, but when we live in a way that declares that Christ has not finished the work that he says he's finished, we do a disservice to him. And we rob ourselves of joy in the process. What a blessing that Christ has paid it all. Remember that. But also be encouraged with this. <laughs> Just a handful of chapters later in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this to believers. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, how often do we read past that verse and we don't think quite about what's going on? The same spirit referenced in verse 4, the spirit of holiness that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Christian. And he will give life to your mortal bodies. This means that as you walk out of here tonight, as you wake up tomorrow morning, and that sin looms large in your mind again, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and for you against that sin. That the forgetfulness that we all share, that the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave is at work in us to fight against our forgetfulness. How often we forget to ask for strength from that resurrection spirit of God. Thirdly and lastly, by way of application for us, Paul writes this to call us to service and worship. I mean, it, it's still, we we'll keep going back to it because it's just right here. It's Philippians 2. It's a call. The, the gospel declaration is a call to trust Christ for salvation, and it's a call to serve and worship Him. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, this is what we should do, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, uh, Charles Hodge says, He, that is Christ, is our supreme Lord and possessor. We belong to Him, and His authority over us is absolute, extending to the heart and conscience as well as to the outward conduct. And to Him every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One other commentator asks it this way, what else is a person to do but bend the knee and serve this great king? What else are we to do in the face of the glory 
of the gospel of God concerning his son. What else are we to do but serve and worship this great king? Isn't it great to be a Christian? What a marvelous God we have. And what a blessing that he has called us to himself that we get to live in light of this gospel, free from sin and free from death, one day being in glory with God forever and now getting to proclaim the majesties of his gospel. May he help us. Amen. Holy Spirit, come from where you are at the Father's right hand for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ and write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We need help. We are weak and frail. We are forgetful. Holy Spirit, please, that work that same power in our hearts by which you brought Christ back from the dead. Bring us to new life, new warmth, new hope, and stir us up for lives dedicated to you, full of gratitude and love and affection. This is our desire, that we might walk with you in the light of life, that we might glorify and enjoy you all of our days. Come, apply the truth of your word to our hearts, that we may do these things by your power and for the glory of Christ. Amen.